Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RV. For years, it has been on my bucket list to visit the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden in Cincinnati, Ohio, because I am absolutely obsessed with hippos. They are my favorite animal. So in 2017, when Fiona the hippo was born, I have aspired to one day end up at the Cincinnati Zoo. Unfortunately, I have not been able to check that off my bucket list yet, but I am extra eager to continue to work towards that goal because I learned this week that the Cincinnati Zoo has added yet another hippo to the exhibit and his name is Tucker. So now there is Fiona and BB and Tucker. Um, so one day I uh, am really hopeful that I get to see all of those sweet babies um, and I'm hopeful that any of our friends in the Ohio area can send cute pictures my way of the hippos. And I'm also side-eyeing my friends a little bit who did not inform me of this like groundbreaking news because I didn't find out for many weeks um, that Tucker was a thing. So send those pictures, give me the FOMO feels, but I'm going to accept this, uh, accept that FOMO feel because I um, am super hype about the hippos. Before we get into uh, our core conversation today, I want to talk about this experience I had um, a few weekends ago with our Institute team. So it's been quite a long time since the members of the Institute have gotten together in person. Um, it's been since the 2020 conference in February 2020 in Kalamazoo, Michigan, that we've been together. So that conference was right before the pandemic, and maybe some of us have seen each other um, briefly. We've been having Zoom meetings um, for all of our work in the meantime. And so we were able to coordinate doing a retreat um, to get back together in person a few weekends ago in early September. Um, so I am a city person. I've only ever really lived in major cities. And so when it was proposed that we have a retreat at this gay campground in Saugatuck, Michigan, I wasn't sure what to expect. Uh, my partner is a very outdoorsy person, and so I've earned quite a few scout badges in my time in that relationship, doing outdoorsy things that I would never have envisioned myself doing. But I am definitely not um, going to call myself an outdoorsy person. So I went into this retreat experience with zero expectations or ideas of what this was going to look like. And let me tell you... I need every state and every county to have a gay-owned, gay-centered campground because this experience was so much fun. It felt extra relaxing, extra comfortable, and already being in a space where it was just really exciting to be back in person with some of my very favorite people. The environment and the atmosphere was just truly great. Um, we had an incredibly fun time and uh, just the idea of a gay campground in Saugatuck, Michigan is just such a Midwest queer trope that I never would have expected um, could exist, right? We 
had a nice fire. We grilled food, you know, channeled all that butch energy into grilling hot dogs that were too long for the buns. Um, we had enthralling late night conversations about different types of lubricant for different types of activities. Um, we learned about this colloquial term at the campground called bear soup, which is when too many people get into the pool at once before allowing their suntan lotion to actually absorb into their body. And this disgusting thick layer film um, accrues on top of the pool. And ta-da, you have bear soup. Good soup. And then I must implicate our group because obviously our podcast is called Take the Last Bite. And in our intro, I very emphatically say that we need to not be stereotypical Midwesterners that um, don't take the last bite of food. And unfortunately, lo and behold, the giant container of croissants uh, at a certain point in our weekend became a container of one croissant until we uh, created this amazing food experiment um, that two of us ideated on where you break open that croissant, you break open that last croissant, and it becomes the perfect pocket for you to insert a Neapolitan ice cream sandwich. Now, unfortunately, we did not name this fat kid treat. So if you've got any suggestions for what to call this majestic um, snack item, totally interested in hearing about it. But yeah, that's what also happens when you not only are stereotypical Midwesterners that don't take the last piece of food, but you then have to make up for it by doing something absolutely amazing and innovative. So again, I need everybody um, to figure out how to pool our resources and just buy up um, spots of land to make these queer communes um, that we can turn into campgrounds and just have a gay old time because this city slicker was absolutely uh, taken aback by just what is possible when you get a bunch of queer folks together in a camp space. So today's conversation um, is a really deep dive into queer adulting and aging. Um, It has been a handful of months since Justin and I turned 30, and my personal attestation to what it's been like being 30 years old is that I haven't really allowed myself to (laughs) internalize any particular changes. Um, But as we'll get into in conversation is that the idea that turning 30 is some ominous negative thing um, is messaging that Justin and I did receive in our youth, but that looks like there has been this really important shift in the culture that looks towards aging as something um, valuable and sacred and that... uh, carries with it increased possibilities for who we can be as people. And I would say that in the past few months, um, I'm definitely taking personal stock of my own life. Um, And so shout out to any other queer millennials who feel like we're in a major tailspin because of all of the shit that we have gone through in our decades of time um, that is very amplified during this global pandemic um, that I feel like I am asserting myself and pursuing things that are appropriate to my vibrations. And I encourage all of you to do the same. So this episode is dedicated to um, other millennials, um, um, because 
we're great and we are fucking doing it. So, um, yeah, this is my, this is my gift to you. Um, this is our gift to you. So please sit back, relax, and, uh, join us for this episode of Take the Last Bite. Y'all, we cannot do this. We cannot be these stereotypical Midwesterners. Please eat the rest of this food. We just have these conversations every day with people. Like, this is exhausting. I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? I don't know who you are, but we're going to talk by the potatoes for five minutes. Because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay. Yeah, I'm broke all the time, but I look amazing. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice. And if that's, if that's, um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. Do y'all want to introduce yourselves uh, before we get into this conversation? Yeah. Hi, I'm May. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. I am a um, person living in Minneapolis, um, doing a bunch of different things um, at any given time. And what are some of those things? <laughs> I just feel like it feels like a humble brag anytime I say the things I do. Um, uh, the most recent thing is starting a nonprofit called Deviant Minds um, to help bolster community in the service and hospitality industries, um, as well as hold those industries accountable. Um I am training to be a death doula um, eventually. Um, It's been a slow going process. Um, I am the volunteer coordinator for Dangerous Man Brewing Company, which is one of the only robust volunteer programs um, hosted underneath a brewery um, in the nation. So uh, those are the things that I do at any given moment. And I'm Justin Drinky, they, them, uh, executive director of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. And I'm here because RB and I talked about what we might want to talk about with this episode in the context of they and I both turned 30 this year. So, so we're going to talk about at some point uh, in this episode, the... I guess the the narrative that that I grew up hearing, which was that gay death happens at 30. So we're going gonna go along quite a journey, I think, in this episode of really just like examining the whole trajectory of technically a person, right? Like human development 101, but making it queer. Um, and so um, I think the most obvious place to start there in my mind is really talking about childhood, and adolescence. And there's this Twitter thread from, I'm not sure, not too long ago, right? But the very first tweet of this thread um, from an individual on Twitter named LM um, that says millennial queers, especially older millennial queers, grew up in a no man's land, a vacuum, a gray zone between the horror of the AIDS crisis and the present environment of extremely online queer spaces. And the thread goes on to talk about how, um, especially I would say like in the late nineties, early two thousands, like you just had these kind of comedic value, queer 
um, figures like from Will and Grace, Ellen DeGeneres was a comedian, right? So just that you saw any prominent figures being kind of these comedic laughing you know, laughed at figures. Um, and then as we've been sandwiched um, by just the, the onset of queer online spaces, what does that necessarily mean for how to understand who you are, what you're supposed to be and how you overcome um, both like the very hyper visible trope of being this comedic um, figure, but then also the online kind of spectrum of what does it mean to be a persona online that might not even match who you are in real, like in, in real life, quote, quote. And I think May, right, like talking about as folks have come into queerness, what does it mean to even think about your life prospects? Um, and like, how does ageism come into play in that, in that like realm also? Because it reminds me of this experience, this really shitty experience um, that a, a good friend of mine had where they'd written this piece about like their experience um, at, a, at a gay bar and how it was very like transphobic and restrictive and local folks like took it up um, and really berated my friend in ways that were very ageist to say that like, you know, you in this very like you haven't paid your dues or you don't understand the historical context of these spaces and why they're so important just by the fact that he was naming that they were restrictive and transphobic and that there needed to be some improvements in those spaces um and that's not the first time i've seen that kind of dynamic where you've got younger queer folks coming into understandings of their queerness calling things out naming things that are um you know restrictive or specifically transphobic and kind of getting pushed back to say, well, you don't know because you haven't been here long enough. And I think that type of message, when we do know that the like life prospects of trans folks, especially, right, like are, are, are what they are, right, um, is really hard to hear because it basically says you have to live a certain amount of life to be valid when we're seeing that the mortality rates of trans folks, queer folks writ large, like is what it is. So then you've got that cringiness all playing out too as you're coming into an understanding of self and like what spaces you want or can be it. Well, I even wonder if that is maybe like a little macro, right? Like, I think that's something we can like parse through and think about now. Um, all having been out for like a decent amount of time and having gone through like I think all individually like multiple coming outs <laughs> um but um I th I'm thinking more like when when you come into an understanding of your queerness like regardless I think of what age you're at right because I like mm -hmm. I still want to hold space um for like mm -hmm. folks who, I mean, I didn't come out till I was 21 and even that felt really late in the game. And I mean, obviously that's not true and that's not always the case, but mm -hmm. um, I think when that, when you, when you're first thinking about like queerness or like I'm queer, I, you know, am a lesbian or this or that, what first starts to bubble up is like, is safety, right? Safety and risk yeah. management, which is, it's tied to aging in that like, it's a self-preservation tool, right? So it's not necessarily even thinking about like, how am I going to navigate 
these spaces, it's more like, how am I going to survive? And so I think, I think that tends to cloud a lot of folks' coming out experience and thinking of, um, is you like come out and you almost immediately go into like a survival mode, like a fight or flight for a little bit before you can like begin to conceive of like just existing and being at peace and then like Mm -hmm. moving through like the developmental stages that um, straight folks don't even have to like think about, right? which is why we say we see this like delayed adolescence, right? I was actually just talking about this um, <laughs> with my therapist this morning um, about how like I, since like coming out as trans, which is still like very, very new and um, mm-hmm. and all of that for me, um, I almost feel like I've been ushered into like a second adolescence. Like I, I find myself like, doing things that I haven't done since I was a teenager um like staying up all night and listening to music and like eating very specific comfort foods and whatever um and I will say though it's almost it's more fun and I would even say sacred to think about second adolescence especially as like trans folk because we like at at any point in the aging process right like we have more, um, more like experiences, more like, I don't, um, what's the word, like reflection. Um, and so like, we get to experience like the highs and the lows that come with like, you know, just being a teenager and like figuring it out. But we also get to be like adults who have a little more empathy and a little more foresight, um, and a little more money, like, which makes <laughs> makes it a little more fun. Um, I just wanna wanna highlight right and make sure that we we name really explicitly what we're talking about because I I know in preparation for this podcast we've been making notes about wanting to talk about this idea of delayed or second adolescence, um, and so uh, at least for me and what I've gleaned from it as I've kind of seen some other references to it, um, including a tweet a few years ago from the author um, George M. Johnson, who uh, wrote the memoir, um, All Boys Aren't Blue, um, had a tweet a few years back talking about how like this idea of second adolescence um, for LGBTQ folks basically looks like doing things in our 20s and in our 30s um, that like what you're saying may right like you didn't necessarily get to do um, or do in ways that were that were resonant to who you kind of now view yourself as right whether that's relationships or whether that's experiences or you know just all of these factors clothes you wore right like just all of these experiences that maybe by nature of social conditioning based on how the world viewed your gender, your sexuality, that like you're reclaiming for yourself later on in life. Um, so that's kind of the idea that we're playing with here when we talk about like delayed or second adolescence. So I'm definitely um, stoked that we're going to continue to talk about that and curious how folks have maybe witnessed or experienced that for themselves. Well, I know I touched on it a little saying that I'm like, I find myself doing things that I haven't done since I was a teenager. And I feel like there's also like a freeness and a little bit of like irresponsibility in a fun way um, that comes with like the second adolescence, right? So like all of pride, I um, 
was maybe like not making the uh, best decisions, <laughs> um, fun decisions, <laughs> but maybe not the best. <laughs> um, and like, as an adult, I can recognize that like, okay, that's, that's a period of time that like, I was maybe not like taking the best care of myself or like, you know, keeping my shit together or whatever. Um, and I also got to kind of like pay homage to this, like, I don't know, I wanted to go out and party with my friends and like, and especially like post pandemic too. I wonder if like, everyone's going to be experiencing some form of second adolescence or third or third or yeah, Jesus Christ. I feel like I went through like a second adolescence when I came out as a lesbian and now like coming out as trans, I just feel like, I mean, my God, am I just going to be 15 forever? Like, is that it? Is that just life for me? Ooh. <laughs> kind of like we're all like redoing. I'm thinking of like the Inside Out movie with the core memories and just like replacing them so that they actually match like all of the islands that you have. Because <laughs> I've had some islands definitely disappear and get swapped out with other things over the course of coming into queerness and transness for sure. I'm just thinking about like, absolutely experiencing like a, f- a sense of liberation f- up- upon leaving, like graduating high school, leaving my hometown and, and going to college, like mm-hmm. opened up so many opportunities for introspection and experimentation that mm-hmm. weren't, weren't possible. And there's, there's a number of reasons that I think that exists. Um, going to high school in a town where my graduating class was only 86 people meant that I was one of two out gay people in my high school, which actually was, was a lot, uh, for that community historically. And there was just not an opportunity for observing any, any type of possibility model that existed elsewhere. And so leaving that community and going into college and seeing so many opportunities for queer people and so many different possibility models for queerness modeled across that campus, both in the student population as well as um, staff and faculty. Like there was just so many opportunities and there were, there were support networks in place, right? There were, I think at the time that I went to, to Michigan state, there were 14 or 15 different organizations specifically for LGBT students. And so being able to like, observe those possibilities but also like the other piece that I think impacted me specifically was like being in a single parent house and like ultimately like being a caregiver for my younger siblings and then leaving that environment and being on my own for the first time where I didn't have to be responsible for other people Mm -hmm. meant that like I could think about what I was going to do right Mm -hmm. I could think about self as opposed to to think about others I, I think I think thinking about this in the context of college students, obviously, like is super important. I remember at the 2015 Mumble Tech, I actually did a workshop that talked about one of the many student development theories, just to get mildly nerdy here for a second, right? And I have major qualms with almost all student development theories, but the idea, right, that I took with this workshop was to say, this is one of like the classics, the student development theories that are often taught to most folks who study higher education um, and that... It does not accommodate, it does not address the fact that like queer and trans folks, and I think I I really honed in specifically on trans folks, is that there were certain 
um, pieces of the theory I was talking about, and I couldn't tell you which one it was now, that didn't address the unlearning and relearning that generally comes with like coming into queerness and transness. Yes, it certainly assumes that like someone is coming into queerness and transness in college, but that is definitely a place where a lot of those light bulbs go off for folks because of the exploratory like nature that you're talking about, Justin, right? So um, when you've got these kind of classics of student development theory being taught that don't really address, right? Like what does it mean to, to relearn or rethink about how you exist in social settings or how you understand your sense of self in relation to others, which is pretty thematic for a lot of student development theory. Um, you're missing an opportunity to really like support and coach um, queer and trans college students, which plenty, plenty, plenty of um, like scholar practitioners are now taking up and like pushing on that particular point. So that's promising. Um, but just that, what does the ask look like, right? Because I don't want this conversation to necessarily insinuate to folks that like, you should infantilize us, please don't do that, right? But just to understand that like, there's this kind of um, unweaving of things that necessarily has to happen. And then the ways that we act accordingly and understanding that like, we may be lost opportunities in youth because of restrictive households or because we just didn't know what was possible or what was an option um, and then taking you know, taking opportunity to do that, right? Um, I think one of the uh, examples that strongly comes to mind, that's not a personal example, but um, uh, on the episode of Queer Eye, where they um, did the makeover with the trans person, Skylar, right? Um, there was this scene that just like, I have never let go of because I felt like secondary offense to the conversation because um, it was early on in the episode where they're like, you know, scoping out the physical space, the apartment, I think, um, for Skylar. And uh, in the bedroom, I think um, there was this like really efficient display essentially of hanging up all of their snapbacks. And as someone who has their own nice um, collection of snapbacks that I rotate through on a regular basis, I was just like, oh, that's so smart, right? And like, as I'm thinking this and as I'm like getting hype about, um, you know, just the aesthetic of this room, it turns into this conversation where the Fab Five are basically like, and it, it's a theme throughout the rest of the episode that Skylar basically needs to act and like dress their age. And that snapbacks, I guess, did not fall into the category of what the, the five of them thought was appropriate based on, I don't even know how old Skylar would have been during this episode, right? So just like, I, I remember viewing that and thinking that and thinking about how even in a queer focused um, piece of media that you've got you know, five AMAB, like mostly cis gay men that are addressing this experience. And there's this divide and this contention around like what is appropriate based on an age versus what's appropriate based on experience um, and, and being trans. So um, that was a, a, a big one that has come to mind when, we, when we've been prepping for talking about this second adolescence. I'm actually glad you brought um, Skylar up and that episode up because I think there was, it was either in the episode or it was in an article that was published mm -hmm. by them.us. 
if I'm remembering correctly, um, that uh, touched on this exact like, you know, is um, is was the critique right of like Skylar's like snapback wall not nuanced enough um, to to kind of like allow for this like I don't know um, this like second adolescence right that we've been talking mm-hmm. about and I mm-hmm. think it also goes back into um, maybe like a little bit of ageism and a little bit of infantilizing in that assuming that like things that we enjoy and value in our adolescence um, have to be left there, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's necessarily true, right? I mean, you can even, like you see it now kind of in this like huge resurgence of like pop punk or maybe that's just my TikTok feed. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And like all the things that like, I don't know, I remember loving as a kid and, and whatever. And now like watching this like, new generation um get into that shit too it just it like makes me think a lot about how um how it's not like it's not bad to still love the things you loved as like a teenager right or that like you would maybe categorize as youthful right and I think maybe the tendency is to assume that like it what a double-edged sword right like youth is like the one thing every everyone seems to it seems to be marketed right towards us is like the only thing we should ever want um but then like presenting youthful behaviors in a queer context suddenly become no not that like you have to be like Mm -hmm. this you have to be like that um and I just think that's ridiculous um we should just be able to love the things that we love (laughs) and I think this is probably a whole separate conversation um, but I think there's an element of wealth and capital that is in, in, mm. in play here as well, that the things that are likely perceived as youthful or, or for adolescence and not for adulthood are the things that, that queer people can afford that are, are more affordable compared to the more expensive things, right? Like we know that, that queer people, especially like Black trans folks, don't have the wealth and capital of cishet white folk, right? Mm -hmm. So how much of this perception of of adolescence is also just based on like being able to afford the things that you can afford versus Mm -hmm. like the expectation of what you should be able to afford in your 20s or as you approach your 30s. I'm just thinking about that episode and it was like, you know, yeah. there's, there's there's like, oh, well, you know, don't hang your hats on the wall. Well, but then you have to have something else to decorate, right? Or like, maybe you can't afford a dresser or a shelf for the hats, right? Maybe it's not even about the mm-hmm. hats. Maybe it's about the affordability of a storage unit, right? Like, or even mm-hmm. like reprioritizing, like where your funds go, sure. you know what I mean? Like, no, I don't, I don't want to buy a dresser because this works and I'm using more money to, I don't know, go camping with my friends or to do this. Right. It's it's just about like prioritization and also access. Right. Like I think even, Mm -hmm. even as we approach, like I'm on the precipice of my thirties. Um, and that is like feeling a a bunch of different ways, um, all Mm -hmm. good and interesting, um, but definitely different. Um, and I think about like, I, I have like an incredible job and an incredible career and I do not have access to the wealth that I think is maybe assumed of someone in their late twenties with like a similar job title or a similar, you know, because it's a unique position in a unique industry. Um, that being said, I think when we think about like 
most queer folks the like the advances the career advances that would lead to increased financial capital are just not necessarily there right like mm. because of like systems or um no like yeah just because of like systemic like shittiness overall um and so we tend to be in jobs that are not like where like maybe the joy does come from having like snapbacks on the wall I don't I I want to try to find a different example or like right or or you are paying trans tax and not able to afford mm -hmm. other things yes yeah exactly that or like most of my money has to go into aesthetic because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay. Mm. And so like, yeah, I'm broke all the time, but I look amazing. And like, mm -hmm. that feels like a very like young perspective, right? Like that feels like a teenage vibe, but it really mm -hmm. isn't. Um, no, it's self-preservation. Because it's, it's self-preservation. Yes, exactly. I think what's really cool about it is like within the self-preservation, like there are ways to find joy. It's just such a shame that like, it seems to be consistently like punished by the culture, by those who do have access to increased wealth, right? Like, it's just like, I don't know, that's making me think of like the assimilationist conversations um, in the gay liberation movement in like the sixties, right? Like um, following Stonewall, the, the we're just like you campaign, um mm -hmm. and all of the problems that came with that and how it completely left out um lesbians and a lot of lesbian groups um really were super racist and like did not yeah and so I guess I it, I don't know why well I do know why right it comes down to capitalism and and, and wealth and um and perceived you know safety in that kind of wealth um but like there's so much to be made fun of for when queers go through like their second adolescence, right? Like even in the queer community, I think we kind of put it down and infantilize it. And I'm, I guess, I don't know why. It's just so joyful. Why does it have to be punished? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and I also think about that, like in the, in the sense of um, thinking about generational differences, right? So we think about aging and different generations experiencing queerness in a different way. And as you were talking, the only thing that I could think is that like, we have to redefine what a generation means because I don't think mm -hmm. that like the standard understanding of, you know, it's, you know, I don't even know what the official definition is, right? But it feels like 20 years, right? Um, maybe it's less than that, right? But 20 years is too long now, you know? The, the difference between 2012 when I graduated college and today, which is only eight, nine years, right? Feels remarkably different. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in four years, it's gonna feel completely different again. And, and so I think that we have to understand that like what we think of as a generation is, is no longer the measurement that I think we can use. I, I think it's gonna have to be even more narrow than that. And I think that's great. I think that uh, things can continue to grow and evolve and change. And, I, and I'm hoping that the, the increased rate of changes as, as to what it means to be queer also means that like some of the really fucked up shit gets fixed sooner. We'll see. We'll have to keep working toward it, right? Not just see, we'll see, but we'll, we'll work on it. And it is, it is a, a mind shift from how we are taught to think about generational differences. 
Yeah, I could go on quite the tangent. So I really value, right, like just naming that generational like differences are not not a super effective measurement of like change. I think there's some guy like some guiding lights and some like goalposts there, but I think my experience with how I've seen general di- generational differences used, especially in like academia and like studying higher education, is that there's kind of these assumptions um, that educators or institutions will use to determine like what an incoming class of college students will. Um, how they're going to operate, what they think, right? And just my experience has been that it's very prescriptive. It's very um, reductive, right? It's just very like um, older gener- an older generation, quote, quote, looking at a younger generation and making a lot of like really unfounded like assumptions about things. And then you experience this disconnect pretty much out the gate because these just assumptions are just trash for the most part. Um, but I do think, that to your point, right, like there is patterns that absolutely should be tracked as far as like what are what is the context in which folks are um, coming into queerness, experiencing queerness, understanding queerness, right? Where are the gaps as far as understanding um, what does it mean like to coexist in a queer ecosystem, right? All these things we talked about, you know, at the very beginning about what messages we were receiving, right? Like the messages have drastically changed, but there's definitely um, gaps and restrictions to to what folks have access to still, um, and also restrictions to folks who are maybe not able to bridge intergenerational gaps um, to have crosstalk and conversation so that we don't just kind of repeat some of the same hardships um, batch after um, batch. Um, I do feel like um, this might be a really good place to, to take like a, like a bone, bone stretch break um, and uh, come back and continue uh, talking about aging and adulthood specifically now that we've talked about um, some childhood stuff. So, yeah. You're listening to Take the Last Bite, a podcast produced by the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. The Institute re-envisions an educational climate that centers the needs and experiences of systemically disadvantaged students and affirms and encourages sexuality and gender diversity. Through this podcast and other programs, the Institute provides community and connection to the next generation of leaders in the movement for our collective liberation. Building a sense of community plays a critical role in improving mental health outcomes for queer and trans youth. We are dedicated to furthering queer success in the Midwest. Our work is made possible through the generous financial support of grassroots donors. Your donation helps provide space for queer and trans students to experience the joy of being in community and helps remove barriers to accessing queer and trans-centered spaces. To learn more and make a contribution today, visit sgdinstitute.org forward slash giving. All right, Sam, we're going to get back into this. We've done a nice stretch. We've (laughs) changed positions in our respective chairs, beds, and um, other physical sitting locations because the queers cannot sit like normal human beings. It's great. It's fine. Um, So we're going to dive back into it, right? So we spent quite a bit of time talking about growing up and childhood um, and delayed adolescence and how um, that impacts just coming into adulthood in general. Um, And I think it's suffice to say that like adulting is hard period, but I think we're gonna tuck into exactly what that experience looks like for queer and trans folks um, in aging and adulthood. And um, just to like tuck right into it, right? So a big 
uh, impetus for this podcast episode in particular um, was that this uh, calendar year at the beginning of 2021, um, Justin and I both turned 30. Um, and as we were talking about podcast options and just generally talking as friends about that that lived experience, um, talking about some messaging that we specifically got when we were maybe, for me, maybe it would be like early 20s, um, that like turning 30 is gay death. Um, mm-hmm. And I was curious if that was like a more ubiquitous experience, if I was just hanging out with like self-loathing people and maybe it was just my <laughs> circle of friends. So um, this idea of 30 being gay death, is that still a thing? Why was this a message that at least two of us received and may definitely want you, wanting you to chime in on like, is that is that real? Like, or is Justin no. and I's experience just like shit? <laughs> I no, I don't think it's I don't think it's that, right? I think um I never got that message, but the main message I've been getting is that everything gets better in your 30s. <laughs> like which is actually the, yes, that is actually true. Yeah. Yes, that <laughs> is what I've been told by friends and mentors, um, cis and queer, cis and straight, queer and trans, like all of them. Um, <laughs> may I ask though, like those people in relationship to you, are they older than you or younger than you? Mostly older. Okay. Cause I feel like the, where I was hearing this message was predominantly in undergrad from like mm-hmm. other undergrad aged folks, right? So early twenties, right. And this whole narrative mm-hmm. of like, your life is over when you turn 30 or your gay life is over, mm-hmm. right? Like, so I'm, I'm really fascinated that that's not something that you've really ever been told. Yeah, not at all. Like not even a little bit. I feel like- That's really promising. Especially since like, cause Arby and I were on opposite sides of the Midwest region and still both mm-hmm. hearing the same thing. So, so it feels to me like it's gotta be pretty, pretty ubiquitous. Um, at least yeah, for- Yeah, I would say- I would say I'm probably the exception that proves the rule, to be honest. Oh, that's fair. So I, I I definitely think it's a thing. It might not be a thing everywhere. Um, and I'm hopeful that it's not a thing moving forward. And, you know, perhaps we can tuck into the daddy complex thing um, and why that might not be a thing. now. But um, I definitely remember hearing this specifically in the context of like being in like late teens, early 20s, right? 18 to like 23 still hearing this right more more predominantly though like in college and I think a little bit of it may have been that like the only social space or the primary social space for queer people at that time was the gay bar and so and and so there was maybe an assumption that like as you get older you don't go out to the bar anymore but then you look around the gay bar and (laughs) all ages right so like I guess I don't even know if that's if that's the reason or if it's just politics of desirability well maybe it's politics of desirability but it also maybe ties into um I think like what being gay has like been associated with right like through main media messages like I think um I was just talking with someone about um how absolute has is like the pride vodka right like their ads are Mm -hmm. always like on it 
and how frustrating that can be as we like think about like alcoholism in the queer community and um and and like just like that line of thinking um but like I can see why there would be an emphasis on like 30s being gay death right because if the idea is that like your 20s are when you're supposed to be partying all the time and like you can go out and like until 5 a.m every night and have a raging hangover and still get your shit done or whatever and that like 30 is when you really need to like not do that anymore or whatever so like I I can see where that is coming from and it's so false like that's so false because being yeah. gay is mm-hmm. not just being drunk or being what gay is not. I well I don't know I I wouldn't have said that last month if <laughs> tried, but <laughs> for me too like the messaging definitely came in college like and like there's a variety of reasons for that one I didn't really have like a super extensive queer ecosystem I think before college like that was its own deal um but then even even getting into college I would say that primarily I would hear comments akin to like 30 is gay death from primarily like cis gays um like gay and lesbian folks and so like I don't know where where the roots of that necessarily is but that's primarily where I got the message and I would say that the folks I was hearing that from were mm, maybe a max of like three or four years older than me that weren't in their 30s yet right but like would hit it sooner than I did and I'd actually be curious if I talk to any of those people nowadays, right. To like ask, right. Like, so now that you're actually in your thirties, like, what's the vibe? Like, are you like realizing, you know, that that actually was not real or just like, what, what was even the impetus of like, of, of that idea for you? Um, Cause I don't, I don't know how to feel about being 30. Right. Like I, I had made a post on Instagram um, a few day, a uh, few weeks, maybe even after my birthday, that was just like, I intentionally let my 30th year come in quietly and slowly and intentionally surrounded myself with certain people just because like, it was my second pandemic birthday, which is its own fucking thing. Like just its own piece of stress, just because like, I just can't even, can't even go down that rabbit hole. Right. But just like second pandemic birthday had a lot of shit going on personally. And then another friend put on my radar this I'm slowly learning more and more and more about astrology but I'm definitely not an astrology queer yet um but a friend who is definitely like a witchy astrology queer was like oh it sounds like you're going through your Saturn return like late and I was like tell me more um and it's essentially just this idea that like the planets align almost exactly or exactly I don't know someone else is gonna like fact check us on this but just like the idea that pretty much exactly as the stars were when you were born are aligned again 20 eight to like 30 years later whatever whatever it just kind of creates this very significant life um shift uh apparently it's supposed to be a very humbling experience and that checks out for me um because I've had quite a lot of life happen right before and right after my 30th birthday this um this past May um and don't know what to do with that right just so like kind of trying to think about what does being an adult mean as we've now talked about this delayed adolescence having very significant life things taking place um and trying to extract lessons from those experiences um and trying also really hard not to benchmark myself um against like other people pretty much anybody but especially like folks I work with 
um, or like folks that maybe I went to high school with folks that aren't queer, right. Just trying really hard not to benchmark myself against like who's buying a house or who's, you know, now very high up, like in a like hierarchical structure at an institution or like who's doing like these, these like life milestone things um, that aren't necessarily part of my narrative and not, um, not trying to compare myself too much to like other folks as adulting. Cause there's lots of factors as per why my shit looks like this and their shit looks like that. I, I think it's so important to not benchmark yourself uh, against somebody else. And I think that like, that is definitely something that I've learned to do in, in, as I enter my thirties is, is just like not care what else, what else is happening. Like do the things that make me happy and don't waste energy and time on the things that don't make me happy. Right. And I don't necessarily care like what somebody else's journey is, is taking them on. I'm going to invest my time and energy on the things that are impactful to me. So I think that is, I think that is a really big lesson uh, that comes right around 30. At, at, at least it feels like that's, that's consistent. As someone on the precipice of their thirties, right? Like I, I turned 28 this year. I, I've been thinking a lot about like age and like temporality well no I guess maybe the opposite of temporality because I feel maybe for the first time in my life like solidly grounded and like aware of my body and my life and my like the perception of of May of me um as someone who is like in their late 20s right and what does that mean um um because I feel like a lot of growing up is just like trying to hit certain you know, uh, benchmarkers and like certain things. And now like all of that has obviously collapsed because it's, it's fake, right. It's like a fake message sold to us. Um, and also there was a pandemic and also like systemic, um, invalidation of queerness and yada, yada, yada. Um, now that like, even, I don't know, we were talking about like generations now moving way faster than 20 years. And I would say like, even the difference between like y'all and myself, right. Is I don't, mm-hmm. um, is I think like the, the very stark collapse of those benchmarks, no one I know is buying a, a home. Right. And like the people that I do, that I know who are, are like extremely privileged. And so it almost feels like, duh, not, not like anything worth internalizing. So when I look around me and I see like, all of my peers also kind of in the same boat it it's it's grounding because now it's like I'm not rushing towards something I'm not rushing to accomplish something I'm already out and like and I've already been out in a few different ways (laughs) um and I know what that's like so I'm in no rush um yeah and I find that like the closer I get to my 30s the easier it is for me to almost slow down a little bit and to be like really intentional about how I spend my time. I just feel like how queerness is marketed in media sometimes implies this like fastness, like you're always on the go, you're always mm-hmm. doing something. Um and yeah, I don't know. I just feel like that's I that's not it. I <laughs> I can slow down and still be queer. <laughs> I'm thinking about the the tweet thread that I mentioned um, earlier, right? And just how that kind of relates to a bit of what we're talking about is just kind of the benchmarking, right? But just thinking specifically about how in some ways we have these very complicated 
points of reference because of the impact of like the AIDS epidemic and how that flavored an entire, you know, generation, if you will, of folks that like have survivor's guilt um, or that experience. We lost a whole generation, like a whole generation just gone. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that specific May, because, you know, I was, I I saw in response to that specific quote, right? Like to say that AIDS wiped out an entire generation, I think is an oversimplification that allows people to ignore current queer elders. Oh, interesting. Okay. Thank you for bringing Mm. that point up. That makes a lot of, yeah. Mm. Okay. Right. Um, So I think that and yeah. I think that is a, a common narrative, right? And so I think you're you're referencing that a little bit, RB. Um, so I don't know if you had an additional thought. But it's you know it's all bundled together, right? Just thinking that like you know who do who do we look to in certain ways that like if you know we're at almost the same age between 28 and 30, right? Who do we look to as folks who are like 20, 30, 40 years older, and like what is the experience of those folks in terms of? Uh, also bridging an intergenerational gap. Um, You know, I think about instructors that I've had who would be not too much younger, right, than like the the primary experiencers of the AIDS crisis, right, and just like the the installation of this weird dichotomy of like fear, but also like reckless abandon, and like there was almost no in-between. So then what kind of messaging has been carried down? What types of things have we internalized? How does that impact the messaging that we talked about earlier of coming into queerness and, and growing up in a circumstance where like we are not free of the like stigmatization and cringiness that was embroiled in the AIDS crisis and just like why are we not talking about it anymore? I think is a, it's, it's a thing that plenty of folks are doing work around is just like, it's, it for me feels like an afterthought in, in, in just talking about like, how does that impact bridging gaps between the history and the experiences? Um, and I think your point about just like, how does, how does some of that narrative and rhetoric erase queer elders or make it complicated to have meaningful connections with queer elders is it makes me think about um, the fact that like Miss Major should be like in the money like Miss Major should have like just endless resources and like that's not the case like there's perpetual like crowdfunding campaigns and other ways to make sure that like Miss Major gets her flowers and like that's not that's that should not be real that should not be the case but it is I I don't know why this image comes to mind but I'm thinking a lot about like from uh i think it's from the new tales of the city the one that came out like last year or the year before whenever i don't know and um they have that uh assisted living home that is like primarily for like queer identified um adults and seniors and elders and um i just think about how like that's something that like would make sense in san francisco and feels almost like part of the course and maybe it's not right because I, I don't i don't know um the landscape of California very well but like in the Midwest that's not the case obviously um and which I think like feeds maybe more into this like regional understanding of queerness right like assuming an erasure so like assuming that like there are no queer folks in the Midwest um assuming that there are no queer elders right like present Mm -hmm. by the narrative that like I just said right that um, AIDS wiped out an entire generation that that isn't necessarily true 
and then and then to your point rb like what resources exist for queer elders that like why are any of our elders at any point like not feeling a thousand percent secure in where they're at like financially emotionally etc cetera, etc cetera. like that that feels i don't know i'm thinking about it communally right like what are we not doing to lift up the folks who came before us who are still here um and i'm not talking lift up in terms of like an instagram post or like sharing like a crowdfunding right for miss major i'm talking more about like like what you said like why doesn't miss major live in like a gorgeous incredible house and like have tens of thousands of <laughs> of dollars or, or access to resources or whatever like how come um there are no well i don't want to say there are none right but like it's hard and probably few and far in between to find like queer based senior living facilities and what is our responsibility as as being part of a younger generation to like care for the folks who've come before us i think that part of it needs to be pushing a narrative change about what labor is valued the, the fact that we exist in a society where your individual like everything is so individualized as far as you know retirement planning and end of life care and everything is your responsibility to do. But if you are on a path in life that is not labor that is traditionally valued, then then what are the safety nets, right? So we have to be be talking about larger systems and structures too, that like individually funded retirement accounts are not the answer. But also apparently social security isn't a thing that's going to exist much longer either. So like, what is the solution? That I don't know, but we need to be talking about it to figure it out. Yeah, no, no, no. I I was going to say, like, I think workers' liberation is entirely like a queer issue. And like, this gets Mm -hmm. away from, from aging and death. But like, it's something that's been on my mind a lot as like someone within the service industry, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Is is it all kind of ties in together, right? Like there are a lot of of queer folk in the service industry. The service industry as a whole does not pay folks appropriately. We can't save, we can't think about aging. And then um, there's also, you know, then like an emphasis on uh, behaviors that would uh, keep us from from aging like gracefully and well Mm -hmm. and long and um right like drinking and like smoking and um all of these things that like I definitely participate in right I'm certainly not here to shame or or whatever um just kind of laying out that like it's all like interlinked right like systemically Mm -hmm. like it's it's not just how how do we protect our queer elders like it's also like a workers liberation question right it's also an issue of of appropriate payment of uh tearing down capitalism of this and that like everything comes back to i think ultimately like i view it through the lens of not just queer survival but like queer thriving right right and it's connected to health and and well-being because i mean the amount of times that i've heard somebody say that their retirement plan is dying young is is more than i can actually count right and and i think that's a real thing among queer queer people specifically is just like not even having the capacity to think about retirement or saving for retirement or what that yeah. looks like right because it is inconceivable as as a queer person growing up in in the existing structures that we have today that, that's what's coming up for me. Mm-hmm. Just that like, it is, it is beyond comprehension, like where to even start, think, like how to even start thinking about being 
like a queer elder in the true sense, right, of being like elderly, right? The concept of like what even what even types of supports or like existing services could possibly exist at that time. And then as far as like an advocacy standpoint, right? Like there's this intergenerational disconnect in a lot of ways. There's definitely organizations like SAGE that are like actively and perpetually working to bridge that. But just like, I don't really like, I don't even have a sense of understanding about like healthcare and like benefits right now to have any comprehension of just like what needs to be in place and what makes sense like later on right like and I think it's one of those things too that like we can all for the most part unless like you live under a rock can collectively agree that the like healthcare system and like the like labor situation like is trash but in some ways I think until you're like in the thickest like shittiest like depths of it you don't necessarily know exactly in what ways it's trash. And so then you're so deep in the weeds of it. Like, and maybe that's just my personal experience because again, the past eight months, courtesy of a, a assumed Saturn return have been uh, really hard. Um, so just like you learn all these things experientially and then you're so far in the weeds of that it, of it that you're inundated with the stress of the system that like, what does it look like to, to push back on it, right? Like the debt, the student loan debt situation comes to mind as well of just like, when does when does that fall out from underneath itself but also you've got folks who are in an insurmountable amount of debt and all of these like things emerging to penalize folks who are not paying their loans and september is going to be very interesting um when we're allegedly supposed to start paying those back um good luck um so i think about just like when I think about queer adulting, it was just kind of this giant headline. Like, I don't even have a comprehension on how to do the things that are presumably supposed to be done by an adult at the age of 30, let alone understand what would need to be structurally in place and how to be in solidarity with like 60, 70, 80 year old queer folks to tackle all of it at the same time. Because I think May, right, like talking about this cert like survival mode, right? It makes me think of scarcity model in that trying to attend to things right now based on the assumption that there won't be resources or money or time for it to be dedicated later, which is not true, but that's just how we're kind of conditioned to function. Well, because then it keeps us from organizing, right? Like again, beyond a queer perspective and queer community, just uh, the real tops and bottoms, am I right? (laughs) That's what (laughs) Karl Marx was talking about. Yes, yeah. sure. <laughs> so that feels um, like an amazing um, maybe pause point, unless we have anything else on aging and adulthood what? to pivot, because we already start talking about elders, but um, be a good bridge. You're listening to Take the Last Bite, a podcast produced by the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. The Institute is proud to produce the Midwest Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, Asexual College Conference, the largest and longest continuously running conference for queer and trans college students. Learn more at sgdinstitute.org. All right, so we're going to dig back into this, Um, starting with, right, so... Um, I know very little about this profession and may, you know, quite a bit about this profession. And so I'd really like you to just like talk and frame to the best of your imposter syndrome abilities. (laughs) Um, Can you talk to us about like what a death doula is 
dies um, and like the emergence of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, a death doula like is very similar to, to like a birth doula, which is most people's entry point into like understanding doulas um, just in general. Um, Cause there are not only like birth doulas, there are like abortion doulas and, um, and end of life doulas, et cetera, et cetera. And really, I think, um, you know, I, after this episode, I'm going to go look up the etymology of the word doula. Um, and I can't believe I didn't before this. Um, but I've always viewed the role as almost like a guide. Um, so mm. you, you have enough knowledge to be able to support the person that you are supporting through the transition period that you're, you know, that they're going through, whether that be birth or death or, um, or like through, you know, like a miscarriage or an abortion or something like that. Um, and so death doulas, um, really in like some way, shape or form have been around for like forever, um, similar to birth doulas. Um, but I would say definitely in the last 20, 30 years, there's been, more of a like coming together of of a field and like the emergence of um like multiple like like it isn't just like a a feel-good volunteer thing right like volunteering at like a hospice or this and that like being a death doula is is a very not to say that that isn't important because of course it is it's critical um but like being a death doula has become like more of like like it can be a professional route the core of it being guiding everyone through the death process, not just the person who is dying, right? But their family or their friend, like the folks around them, their caregivers. So that that is what I can say about death doulas. Um, the community here in Minnesota is pretty active. Um, I'm not as involved as I would like to be at this point in time because there was a pandemic, but um, working on getting back in there can you can I ask Ben can you talk a bit about like how this became like an alluring aspiration for you and like what drew you to this work I first was super interested in palliative care upon watching Six Feet Under Six Feet Under is a show that follows a family that owns a funeral home in LA and upon watching that show I just was so so enamored with mortuary science it just felt like very much like that's what I needed to do unfortunately there were no mortuary science programs near where I grew up and um and also I wasn't very good with science growing up either so I just thought maybe you know (laughs) it's just like that for me and I can just admire it um and then I learned about death doulas I want to say a couple years ago um I'd heard of birth doula as well before I think I'd ever like heard of um death doula as also a practice um so it's all it's all very like interesting and very promising, I think, to hear about like folks committing to I'll say non-traditional just in the sense that we have a very like institutionalized format for how we um, and westernized format for how we uh, send folks off um, in death and just also how that impacts grief Um which I think very much interplays in this conversation um, where we're talking about elders and death. Um, So just, I'm curious from you too, um, like how, based on what we've talked about so far, right. And just your kind of aspirations for this work and what you may be witnessing in the field. um, Just like how, how like queer aging 
and like queer folks and death, right? Like all kind of interplays and how this type of practice, right? Like this very facilitated, very intentional, very like um, attentive, like approach to facilitating and guiding um, through death, right? Like is um, like a maybe important consideration um, or idea for like queer community, um, does that make sense? Yeah, I would say that like, um, I maybe am not deep enough in this field to like truly speak on, on what resources exist for queer elders or what that, like what queer death and aging looks like. But what I do know is that like, I, there's a gap there, right? Like I think in any of the education I've received so far or like have pursued so far, there hasn't really been a discussion of it. There's always been a discussion of like navigating like family tensions or um, in like an ethical and um, compassionate way, but never, never anything having to do with like sexuality or gender, right? Which I think is, is a big gap and something we should be talking about, especially as I like think about so many like trans folks even in death like being like misgendered and misnamed like regardless of of when their death was or the circumstances surrounding it um there's always that fear something that like if there is a doula or or uh someone there to help in that process right of like either pre-planning or or navigating like hospice with the family and those conversations with the family um like that's critical, right? Like that's, it's more, it's more than just like giving someone a good death. It's giving like the community, like a reaffirmed sense of like who gets a good death, right? Which should be everybody, regardless of how, how you go and in what way everyone deserves a good death, whatever that means. How does that in some ways translate into like community care and how do folks who like wouldn't be, you know, explicitly going into the field as becoming a death doula, like how do all of us kind of own some responsibility for managing the like frequent grief that comes with just like being part of a queer ecosystem, whether we're talking about like queer elders specifically, right? Like just the aging process, which is what we've been hitting on so much throughout this episode, but just like the just tragedies that kind of flavor our experiences um, and are part of the messaging that we just inherently get um, is just thinking about some of that as a community care practice. Yeah, definitely care is like right there at the core of it. And um, I, I wish I had answers too, right? Like I think that looks very different depending on the queer ecosystem that you exist in and what that looks like, right? Like the one in Minneapolis is, um, as I'm learning, very, very small <laughs> um, and also very, very loving. Um, I don't know. I'm like excited to age around these folks. You know, I'm thinking a lot about this conversation that that you you that you two just had um, and and how it kind of ties to what we've been think what we've been talking about something else that i'm that i'm spending a lot of time thinking about is is as we age and we think about like our bodies and our flesh carrying us through that aging process right that there is not an understanding of how that physical aging is going to happen necessarily and i think a lot about how so called healthcare is already unequipped to deal mm. with queer and trans bodies 
And then to add aging on top of that, right? Nobody talks about how your body changes and things don't work the same as you get older. Mm-hmm. And to combat compound that with like healthcare, not really understanding queer and trans people as well. Like there's, there's some major issues there. And I think that like a place to start might be to not even call it healthcare. I think we have to think about it in, in terms of wellness and to understand that like a diagnosed disease is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Depends on what it is. And a diagnosis like can be an answer that you're looking for Mm -hmm. and something to understand about how to like manage your body into a a place of wellness, right? As opposed to saying this diagnosis means that there is something that has to be fixed and you have to have X, Y, and Z medication. And you're going to watch 17 infomercials on this medication every time you turn on your television. Well, thank you. (sighs) Medical care as you age is already complicated. And then as you add in like just the impossibility of finding queer and trans affirming doctors. Mm-hmm. It just, it's, it's daunting. I honestly, any interaction with medical care is exhausting. I like was talking with a friend the other day about like maybe potentially considering top surgery and, um and they've like been through the process and they were just talking to me about like um navigating the bureaucracy there and my body immediately just got exhausted I was like honestly like maybe this is the body I'll die in because I'm too tired to navigate the systems that will Uh get me to the body that I want and also the thing is like I don't even know if that's the body that I want right but like because there's so much pressure put on that decision right um on like permanence and like permanently changing your butt like what are you leaving when you leave this earth, right? Like, is that the body you want to have? And it's going to be really difficult to get the body you want to have. Like, not even like top surgery. Also just thinking about like access to like the things we want to do to take care of ourselves as we're getting older, right? Like if I have to buy another fucking vitamin, if I have to budget in (laughs) another goddamn supplement, I don't think you all understand. Like I'm done. I'm out. I already have too many. (laughs) I think this pandemic specifically has really like rocked my dome on just like my personal perspective on like all, all the things we've talked about really just like the, the, the sheer global grief of the loss from the pandemic. And then just kind of the personal restlessness around like the language that was being used, has been used throughout the pandemic about folks who are immunosuppressed or immunocompromised. And I remember telling folks um, like in a meeting, right, pretty early on in like global shutdown. So last, you know, 2020, maybe in like June or July, telling folks that like I felt really frustrated because like as a fat and trans person it had been a very 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 long time since I had purposely gone to a doctor and so I didn't really have any like personal basis like I didn't really have a baseline of just like what was my health status at that particular point in time and so then to not know what my potential risks were regarding this pandemic which like the risk was high regardless like no one wanted to you know no one should have wanted to get this virus, but just like the idea of not knowing and the not knowing being rooted in this like frustration and this mistrust and this like knowing um, that like participating in just something like going to a primary care doctor would not be 
a promising experience. And then having that proven to me because of my like anxiety of all of this pandemic stuff and wanting to get that baseline, I did go to a doctor and it was a terrible experience. I know we're like kind of, we're, we're kind of getting close on time. And so I want to put a bow on my thoughts, which is that I think we queers really have like this unique experience of living life almost like in between the veil, right? Like I think we almost perpetually across the board have one foot in this life and one foot out of this life. And I think that like a thousand percent impacts every single decision we make and is influenced entirely like by the information we take in, in a way that I don't think is accessible to cis straight people because the ever present fear of death is not, is not there for them in the same way. And it's not always like death, right. But like the ever present fear of like your safety in some way, shape or form, it Um, like creates the shared reality that we all have that we're all just kind of like, I don't know, glistening along, like (laughs) those are my thoughts. That's kind of, I think where I, I want to like wrap up. Absolutely. I think that this was, uh, this has been an enlightening conversation and certainly helped me even just like conceptualize the, the, and, and name the things that have, you know, been this like underlying thought and experience that like, we, we don't talk about very much. Right. And so I think that's why this is such a good episode is like, it's one of those things that like, we don't really talk about death and dying or fear of death or fear of harm. And we need to, so, you know, this is a great invitation to, to our listeners to take another last bite and, and talk about death. Absolutely. I think that we talk a lot about violence and violent, you know, ways in which lives are lost or stolen. Um, but we don't necessarily talk about like claiming and controlling and like being present for like the life process and the aging process. And I just feel very... Um, back into like reference you know octavia butler's parables where she says that like we're all just stardust right like we're earth seed and like we'll eventually just trickle back into the universe in a particular way um and that you know we still have agency to like guide us through and you know as the death doula field continues to grow right ideally we'll have amazing folks to guide us you know into that particular journey but it's scary but it's also I think necessary where we do a lot of ideating on how to live our best life and so what does it mean to ideate um and die our best death um which is hard but um I've been really grateful to like talk into all of all of the all of the layers of this with both of you and we'll have um quite a lot to think about I think after we um are done here so I mean and if anybody wants to share what a good death looks like for them in the future I love talking about that I have so many different ideas for what I think the end of my life is gonna look like in like a fun way in a like fun and introspective way not in a danger zone way so may how can somebody find you are you on twitter instagram oh god yeah i'm on i'm on all of it constantly so much um i have carpal tunnel (laughs) you can find me on uh instagram at may is short or twitter at also may is short m-a-i is short uh it's been 
lovely chatting about death with you. <laughs> Please, let's do it all the time. Absolutely. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. This podcast is made possible by the labor and commitments of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, and Nick for all of your support with editing, promotion, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>